TV producers always think they should write a book because we want to explain to the world that writing television is harder than writing prose. If you write a book or any sort of written material, you can just sit down and say what you want. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today I am very pleased to introduce to you our guest, David Page. David is a two-time Emmy winner who changed the world of food television by creating, developing, and executive producing one of my favorite shows, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, he traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things, covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. Creating Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives and hands-on producing its first 11 seasons took David deep into the world of American food, its vast variations, its history, its evolution, and especially the dedicated cooks and chefs keeping it vibrant. His next series, The Syndicated Beer Geeks, drove deep into the intersection of great beer and great food. It's those experiences and that education and the discovery of little-known stories and facts that led Page to dig even deeper and tie the strands together in his book, Food Americana. And today, speaking of books and food and writing, David not only shares with us some incredible stories about some really interesting meals he's had with some very interesting people, which you'll learn about when you hear the interview. But also, he talks a bit about the difference between writing for television and writing a full-length book, and how his experience writing for television helped him to write a better book. Mm -hmm. So, enjoy. So, David, welcome to the Author's Corner. Well, thank you for having me in the Author's Corner. I've really been looking forward to this interview and because I'm a massive fan of diners, drive-ins, and dives. Thank you. (laughs) I've spent way, probably too many hours uh, watching it and drooling over. (laughs) Well, drooling's good. That's important. All the creative um, imaginings of our American cuisine makers. And I also took a look at your book and it makes me want to go on my own tour. <laughs> well, food tours are a good thing. Right? Or, or making any trip a food tour is a good thing by going Absolutely. out of your way to find what's local and special. Yeah, and that really is the key, right? Because if you oh, get yeah. caught in the touristy, like the worst place to eat in New York City is Times Square, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, though. There are a few tourist traps that are actually worth it, like Katz's Deli in New York or Harry's Bar in Venice. You know, it's Mm -hmm. for all of the hype, they live up to it. 
Yes. Okay. And that's, so maybe that would be another book. <laughs> yeah. Tourist Trap's worth going to. Right. Exactly. I think I'd buy that one too. Okay. I'll, I'll get to work. <laughs> and I'm so fascinated with your background and your experiences. I'm really struggling to just know, even begin to think of where to begin here, but maybe we begin a little closer to the more recent and work our way back because Absolutely. how did you come up with the, cause you actually conceptualized diners, drive-ins and dives. And tell us a little bit about the genesis of. Sure. It was all a happy accident. I'd rather be lucky than good. I had left network news and then worked for a bit at a home shopping channel and figured out I really didn't want to do that. Mm. So I opened a production company and immediately began starving out of desperation. <laughs> I called my friend Al Roker, who A, had a production company, and B, had worked technically for me, I guess, when I was the co-producer of the Weekend Today show before he was on the main show. Mm -hmm. And I said, Al, you, you got anything you could throw some money at me to do? And he said, you know, I'm doing a lot of Food Network stuff. Why don't I subcontract some of it to you? So I started a relationship with the Food Network that way. Mm. And then Al and I both agreed that for me to make any real money, I couldn't continue to split the pie with him. So I began pitching them directly, and mm -hmm. that was remarkably unsuccessful. I at least had entree, which is the first step, because they knew me, and there was a nice executive there, and she would take my phone calls, but it was a constant barrage of no thank you. Mm. One day, late in the day, I remember, it was maybe a Thursday, maybe even a Friday, I was on the phone failing to pitch on anything again, and she finally said to me out of desperation, when I was working through Al, I did a documentary for them on diners, and she said, don't you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh, absolutely. I'm developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, and I told her all about it. And she said, well, that sounds good. Uh, why don't you get me a write-up on Monday? We have a development meeting on Tuesday. And I got off the phone sort of conflicted because on the one hand, she had expressed interest. But on the other hand, it was all BS. I, I was going to say, yeah, did you really I have just, anything? In no, I had nothing in development <laughs> of that sort. I literally invented the name on that phone call. That's out incredible. Of air. There is no better name for that show. Well, like I say, I'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> so I spent the next few days calling all around the country to try to find the content for a one-hour special. I wrote it up. I sent it in on Monday. They had their meeting on Tuesday. And shortly thereafter, they commissioned a special, one one-hour special, with no real intent to make a series at. What I didn't know was Guy had won the next Food Network Star Contest. It was the second one they'd ever had. And at that time, they still thought that they could use that contest to literally create the next generation of Food Network stars. As it turns out, Guy's the only one who ever made it. But I was going to ask you how you came up with Guy Fieri. To yeah, well, I had no idea who he was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, they told me, and I Googled him, and I saw this spiky cartoon in short pants, and I thought I'm screwed, but that's a different <laughs> story. So what they were doing, they wanted to get a primetime show for him, so they had commissioned a couple of big boy production companies, you know, heavy hitters to propose something. 
But in the meantime, they liked my pitch and they figured, you know, we could keep a little more exposure for a guy wouldn't hurt till we figure out what we're doing with him. So they commissioned a special. Then when the big boys, you know, I was in the short pants. They were, well, guy was in the short pants. They were wearing suits. (laughs) When they made their pitches, the network was resoundingly unimpressed. The special had done very well, I think much better than they expected. So what they did is they commissioned one unusually short season Mm. to see, was there anything here? And after the first two or three shows rated well, one of the executives called me, tamp down my enthusiasm and tell me that, look, you know, this is all fine and dandy, but this thing is not going to have legs. We figure a season or two because there just aren't enough restaurants. Wow. And, you know, I bailed out after season 11. They're now in season 40. I was going to say. But, you know, it took me back to the best book ever written on Hollywood is William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. He, Goldman, the Oscar winning screenwriter. And Goldman's rule with respect to why things get made or not made and why things succeed or don't succeed is, and I quote, no one knows anything. Ah. There you go. It's a lot like breakaway best-selling books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the same thing. Exactly. No one right. knows. Yeah. Now, know. after the fact, success oh. has many fathers or mothers, but yes. um, Yeah. And, and the the whole idea that there's not enough restaurants is <laughs> I was ludicrous. not concerned, let's put it that way. <laughs> then again, I don't mean to say something mean here, but Most of the people who commission stuff in American television only know the coasts. They think about, they literally think about the middle of the country as, I mean, it's a cliche, but flyover country. And yeah, they have no idea what's out there now. You know, I had lived in many places. I had been a journalist and worked in many places eaten in many places. I was pretty comfortable. I could eat my way across America with no trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it not only brought, I would imagine, quite a lot of recognition to these hole-in-the-wall places, but also probably encouraged people to be more exploratory, right, when they're, and maybe not go so much for the chains. I hope so on the latter. With respect to the former, it actually, this was, I wasn't trying to do this when i pitched the show but it turned out that we saved a number of restaurants from bankruptcy wow you know the margin in the restaurant was tiny it got to the point my daughter at the time was in high school and competing in horse shows at a pretty high level yeah including in lexington kentucky which is a pretty serious horse show there was a restaurant there was a barbecue joint in kentucky in lexington that it turns out we saved and it started to get embarrassing. I actually couldn't eat there every time we came to town because they would just pile the table up with food and <laughs> no way would they let me pay, you know, right, so right. <laughs> at some point you kind of figure it isn't fair to them. Right. <laughs> God, it was good mutton barbecue. Oh, see, now next, I just went through Kentucky a couple of years back, a couple of years back. Yeah. And we did a, covid version of a bourbon tour so i wish i'd known about that oh where'd you go i've done one of the bourbon tours they're great yeah we we, we just we kind of created our own because that's fine really, too yeah nobody was really open so we went to a few different well we i'll have to look them we up for you 
went to a distillery, one of the big ones, might have been Four Roses, I'm not sure. And we arrived just as they were closing, but a tour bus was disgorging a bunch of people who had booked a private tour. It turned out it was a huge family reunion, so they said, well, you could be cousins. So we took their tour. (laughs) And (laughs) then they offered it. They said, get on the bus. We're going to the next place. We couldn't. We had to go back to the horse show. But (laughs) it was delightful. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. So really fascinating. Now, you know, I noticed your book is about food Americana, right? Mm -hmm. And so it definitely runs along the theme of diners, drive-ins, and dives. But you take a different approach. Well. Um, it I'd answers like to a tell question. Our listeners about that, yeah. Sure, and to some extent, it is a result of my increasing thought processes while doing diners. But it really began when I was first sent overseas for NBC News many years ago, never having expected to travel internationally. It just literally was not something I'd ever considered, and so now I'm being sent all over the globe to countries I know nothing about, and I'm trying to catch up real quickly. And one of the things I learned is that the cuisine of a country, or more specifically a region, because mm. most, you know, we think of Italian cuisine. It's not. It's a bunch of cuisines of different regions that develop based on what was grown there. But mm-hmm. I learned that food of places is a really good way to get a foothold on what a society is about. They eat in Tuscany. Give us, give us an example. Yeah. Well, sure. In Tuscany, they eat a lot of wild boar because they were historically poor. And if you couldn't kill it, you couldn't eat it. In Greece, the concept of the meza, the small plates shared by everyone, is really an outgrowth of the culture there that prizes time together and interaction. In a place like Strasbourg, France, which is France, the dish that is most representative of Strasbourg is German. It's chacrut. It's a large plate of sauerkraut covered with hunks of meat, generally pork, and often sausages. And that is a reflection of the fact that that has been disputed territory for centuries Mm. and went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, It's that sort of, oh, kind of a glimpse into a culture that opens your eyes to where they come from and what they're about. I took that sense with me when I came back to the States, and it stayed with me as one of the pillars of diners, as we looked for more than just recipes. And then one day I said, you know, it's time to write a book because, well, a number of reasons. TV producers always think they should write a book because we want to explain to the world that writing television is harder than writing prose. If you write a book (laughs) or any sort of written material, You can just sit down and say what you want. It was a dark and stormy night, and then Oedipus (laughs) killed his father. You can't do that in television. Right. You have a mass of material, picture and sound and people talking, and the writing you do for that, if you're good, is supposed to be, for the most part, invisible and simply Mm. slowly propel you with an unseen hand from 
a moment that unfolds in front of you to another moment that unfolds in front of you. So every producer figures I can write that book one day. I also have, I get bored, even in the world of television, I've changed what I do every few years. You know, uh, to many people, I'm a food journalist. Well, to many other people, I was an investigative journalist. You know, it, to others, I was a morning show guy. So I just figured, what the heck, let's give it a shot. What question do I want to ask and hopefully answer? And having traveled much of the world, and seeing the varieties of food and knowing that people can identify, at least they think they can, the cuisines of other places, I won't use the word countries, I said to myself, what's American cuisine? And that's the story that I went out to research and tell. And I love how right from the beginning, you disrupt our expectations with the chapter American Pie, which of course, generally we'd think Apple, right? Yeah, well... <laughs> Look, the but true American have, pie comes out of a pizza oven. That's right. And I just love that. And talking about, I mean, maybe I'd like to hear it in your words, because what I was really picking up on is American cuisine is kind of, in a way, the world's cuisine. <laughs> like what it is, it. is this is as cliched as it gets, but we are the melting pot. Mm-hmm. And we are a country made up for the most part, although obviously Native Americans were here long before most of us, and their cuisines are finally starting to get noticed. But having said that, for the most part, what we eat is the foods that have evolved from the foods that immigrants longed for when they got here. And when I say evolved, they're not going to be the same as they are in the motherlands for a number of reasons. Number one, ingredients may or may not be available. Mm-hmm. Number two, cooking methods may differ. Number three, economic conditions here may make it possible to change those dishes. I refer specifically to Italian food in that respect. The people who first came here from Italy were dirt poor. To them, pizza was at best some tomato on a crust. And if it was a really good week, a piece of lard, I'm not kidding. Yeah. When those immigrants arrived here and realized that being poor in New York was a hell of a lot better than being poor in Naples back then, Hmm. and that even if you were poor, you could afford good God meat, well, then (laughs) the whole basis of pizza and Italian-American cuisine was modified right off the bat by the use of copious amounts of meat and by the general sense of abundanza you know, big plates because you couldn't get those back home. And, you know, one of my grandfathers used to insist he had escaped the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And when we went to a restaurant, he insisted that there be a basket of bread on the table. And the chances were real good. No one was going to eat a slice. But having escaped poverty and hunger, he wanted the security of knowing that that food was available to him. Wow. And, you know, Italian food, Chinese food, Mexican food, there's this whole authenticity debate that's just a waste of time. Mm. These are not Mexican dishes as served in Mexico. You can increasingly get those if you look for them. But for the most part, there are a variety of Mexican-American cuisines that evolved quite legitimately 
over time since the mid-1800s, frankly, when in the Mexican-American War, half of Mexico suddenly found itself living in America. Right. (laughs) um, Because we moved the border pretty substantially. At that point, A, many ingredients became hard to get. B, if you were going to open a restaurant and try to serve your food to an Anglo population, you were going to figure out pretty quickly what they would or wouldn't eat. I mean, it's the same with Chinese food. The first Chinese restaurants in America were associated with the California gold rush, with men who came from Canton province to search for gold and other men who came from Canton province to feed and clothe them. Right. And also build the railroads, right? Like the the railroads came later, came later. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It started with the gold rush very clearly. Thank you. And what happened was beyond feeding their own folks, some of the savvy restaurateurs said, well, what will the Americans eat? And much of Chinese cuisine, as with many cuisines, is based on offal, on interior parts of the animal that Americans, for some ludicrous reason, refuse to eat. But let me tell you what's in your breakfast sausage. Um, (laughs) So the dish that was presented for Americans was chop suey. Now, there's a great debate over whether or not chop suey was a modification of a dish made in China or was something invented here out of whole cloth. I tend toward the explanation that it was a modification Mm. in which stir-fried vegetables, instead of being served with tripe or tongue or liver or kidney, were now served with pork, chicken, or beef. But it was the chop suey thing that became a craze that turned America on to Chinese American cooking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I was even when I was looking at your chapter on Mexican food and there's there's quite a few foods that this Mm Mexican-American amalgamation amalgamation has created. And then it's. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding there's also kind of a difference even inside of American Mexican food, like Tex-Mex. Oh, there are. It's evolved in different ways, again, based on available Mm. ingredients to a great extent. Mm. Uh, Secondarily, just based on what folks in different areas chose to do. But you've got Tex-Mex, California Mex, Mm. New Mexico Mex, Colorado Mexican. Definitely Mm. different. Yeah, which is, I mean, well, in New Mexico... There's a fascination with hatch chilies. Yes. <laughs> um, so, and some of that has actually moved north to Colorado. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And there's a lot of you order your burrito, you can have red, you can have green, or my favorite, you order Christmas, which is half red, half green. Oh, nice. <laughs> California Mex tends to be a little more light, a little more seafoody, although. Mm. It's California. It's San Francisco where the massive breakfast burrito was invented. That thing is the size of Bolivia. Um, And and in all candor, having made a point on my reporting trip to San Francisco to once again sample that burrito, not a fan. It's Mm. the largest collection of rice and stuff. Yeah. I prefer something that doesn't just sit like a gut bomb, but many people love them. And frankly, that was the dish that was the 
well, the foundational dish, if you will, of I'm completely blanking. You go down the line, the pseudo Mexican place where they, I want this, I want this, I want this. Oh, uh, come on. It's going to come back to me. Anyway, everyone out there knows what I'm talking about. Um, oh, Chipotle. Chipotle. Chipotle, yes. It's the foundational dish behind gotcha. Chipotle. And Chipotle was made in Denver. That is correct. Yes. Now, the yes. foundational dish behind most Mexican food as it crossed America was a fast food restaurant. It mm. was Glenn Bell, who used to eat at a Mexican restaurant across the street from his hot dog stand in California. I think Riverside or around there who looked at what they were doing and thought, I could do that. And he figured out a way to quickly fry tacos. He said he invented a frame you could drop into the oil. It's proven someone else actually invented something similar earlier, but he may not have. known. Anyway, the point was, (laughs) how do you turn a kind of Mexican food that is based on a fried taco, not a soft taco? Mm. How do you produce it quickly? And he figured that out. And Taco Bell, as it moved eastward, brought the concept of Mexican food. And I get it. It's certainly it's as Mexican as (laughs) McDonald's is a high class burger. But (laughs) nonetheless, it was the starter drug that opened the door to the growth of Mexican cuisine across America. Yeah, and I was picking up on too in your book. It's almost like kind of a subculture of the Taco Bell, right? Oh, there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that's it, yeah. Really I, I tell the story in the book of <laughs> the uh, Penn State, I guess. Yeah, Penn State students who suddenly lost their Taco Bell and they held a candlelight vigil. <laughs> but understand, they were less mourning a particularly ethnic cuisine. And more bemoaning the lack of a place to go when you're drunk at 3 a.m. So <laughs> my favorite yeah. part was breaking out into song of the oh, arms yeah. of an angel. <laughs> yeah, well, this was it was funny because the student reporter who covered this told me when he went there, he thought it was going to be a goof. And then he started to get emotional. <laughs> Which does tell us a lot about, because food is obviously, we love it because it tastes good or it makes us feel good or it's comforting or whatever, but there is that social aspect that's so- Of course there is. To the whole thing, to the whole- Absolutely. I mean, look, the movie Diner, where they're all hanging out at the diner in Baltimore. Baltimore, yeah. (laughs) I live in New Jersey, which has more diners than any other state in America. (laughs) Pennsylvania, which is next door, is second. So I adore the diner culture, but the diner culture is to a great extent about 1 a.m. and a cup of coffee and hash browns. So Mm -hmm. I've signed on completely. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was doing theater in Denver, like the Denver diner was. Oh, yeah. Everything else was closed. Didn't Denver have. God, I remember this from the doc I did. I think Denver had an original, it may have been an O'Malley diner that was shipped out West. And at one point, I think it was the Westernmost legitimate pre-manufactured diner in America. Oh, okay. That I don't know. There was a diner right in the center of your boulevard, like right at the edge of downtown. Yeah, they had a- Open until like 
two, three, four in the morning. And yeah, so and after you did a show, that was like the place to go. Well, didn't they, they tout any? their steak? Maybe. I never got I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember. They had a um, hell of a chocolate milkshake. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, because if it's a real diner, guess what? There's milk in the milkshake. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things, it talks <laughs> me sometimes when people use the term greasy spoon, a diner's not a greasy spoon. It's a restaurant that, at least if it's a good one, makes stuff from scratch. Yes. What a concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Applebee's is a defroster. Friday, <laughs> this is pre-packaged, pre-prepared food that requires very little human interaction. And it just it bugs me when Americans go that route. My daughter was it was graduation day at college. She went to Columbia, so it's in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I was deputized by the family to be the one who goes across the street to get breakfast sandwiches, because if you're in New York and it's in the morning and you don't have a breakfast sandwich, you get arrested. So <laughs> I went across the street and there were two storefronts, both offering food. One had a line like down the block. Mm-hmm. The other one had nobody. The one with the line down the block serving garbage from a convection microwave Mm. was Starbucks. The one I went into that no one was going into was a bodega Uh where a guy was behind a grill that had been seasoned for the last 10 or 20 years, Mm. exquisitely preparing bacon, egg and cheese sandwiches from scratch with Mm. Fresh rolls, because it's New York City and you get your bakery goods fresh. Yep. And that's just a delightful thing to eat and to see all of these people. And I get it. Most of them are out of towners. Right. But man, if you can eat a breakfast sandwich at a bodega, eat a breakfast sandwich at a bodega. Yeah. And I think that's something I really loved about the show, Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, which I only don't watch anymore because only I don't watch Television. It's fine. I don't do it anymore. I don't so watch you television don't to that's watch. live anymore. So. <laughs> Everybody's streaming. I know. I skip the commercials. And this is something that speaks to this point is that when food is made in the way that you just described, I think it's got love in it. Right. And it, it's yeah. like there's a person who's pouring part of themselves mm-hmm. into that. And I think that that really affects the quality of the food. Well, I think people have lost that at home. All this BS about meal kits. You get a cellophane packet that has two tablespoons of salt in it. For God's sake. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. Sometimes you want to order out. Sometimes you want something simple. I don't think a meal kit is simple. Make some food. I mean, here's a concept. You take a chicken, you put it in a pan, Salt, pepper, some vegetables. You put it in the oven on, get this, 500. I cook hot. Ah. And an hour later, you've got a homemade roast chicken, which is better than anything you can possibly get elsewhere, unless it's fried chicken, because I don't do that well. But I mean, make some food. Uh, Yesterday, we had braised short ribs, which Mm. took me 20 minutes in the middle of my day to put the vegetables and the ribs and the red wine and the tomato sauce and the stock in a pot, put it on low and walk away for three hours. <laughs> right. I mean, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and you feel when you're eating that food, whether it's food you made, food a friend made, mm. 
you feel something. It's That's good. I, yeah. you know, and it's not, I'm not hung up on organic or I don't want the chickens to be industrially raised, but I'm not going to, you know, mm-hmm. it, I'll buy the chicken at the supermarket. There's just something nice about eating food you made to your taste. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And you can control the ingredients too, and you don't yeah. have any things you're not aware of. I made a red sauce with hot Italian sausage. It was chicken sausage the other day. Mm-hmm. Had some friends over for dinner, and before tasting it, one of them said, You have any hot sauce? And I said, Sure, but taste it first. I don't think you're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't. He did not. Okay. <laughs> he did not. All right. I'm going to go even farther back because I was absolutely captivated with curiosity of tell us about the first time you had couscous we had all flown in there was <laughs> Muammar Gaddafi was he was a tv event he was a walking tv event right. the guy a a murdering terrorist yes but he had charisma right. and he could draw an international media crowd just by dangling the possibility that he was going to be talking. So one of those events took place and the entire international press corps assembled and they put us all in his ceremonial tent. The one Barbara Walters was seen in interviewing him. He didn't live in a tent. I mean, I can tell you about his house in a minute, but they didn't know what to do with us because he had decided not to talk to us. <laughs> so they stuck us all in this tent and served us an elaborate meal based on couscous, which I had never had before and which I immediately fell in love with. Right. <laughs> um, I did get a one-on-one with him shortly thereafter, but not during the evening of the couscous. So what did you learn about Libyan culture with that meal? It's... Well, the grain is an important part of culture there because it's what can grow there. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that different cuisines are based on what can be grown in that climate. Secondarily, as with most countries that have a history of, I don't want to say poverty, but certainly not wealth. Mm-hmm. And you'll see this in most of the rest of of the world, certainly in what would be called the third world, is you get very little animal protein. Mm -hmm. If you're living in a part of the country that has cows, you ain't going to kill them because they're giving you milk. Mm -hmm. If you live in a part of, I said country, I meant world. If you live in a part of the world that has chickens, um, you don't kill them because you need the eggs. eggs. right? So you'll find in much of the world, a combination of legumes and grains when combined properly as a protein source. Mm-hmm. And then maybe like a little protein. Yes, tiny, you'll get a, like a, just a, a tiny. Yeah. You know, when, well, you don't have the problem because you're thin, but when I huh. go to the doctor and the doctor Bless says, you for saying yeah, that. <laughs> the doctor says lose weight and then shows me this book where the proper serving of protein is the size of a small fist. And I think to myself, yeah, right. Sure. I'm not <laughs> like that, but we are as a country far too animal flesh dependent mm-hmm. um, the Middle East, especially. I mean, yes, the lamb and goat are prime proteins, but they're rarely the centerpiece of a meal. When I started working in Israel, for example, I'm Jewish, so I should think going to Israel is wonderful, and it was, but all of the office staff used to laugh at us at a towners because, you know, we're looking for 
a hunk of food and when come lunchtime they're unpacking their tupperware jars of various salads right which is the centerpiece <laughs> with some cheese of right. a middle eastern diet and it's obviously much healthier Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, of course, would go down the street to the falafel stand where <laughs> I had my vegetables deep fried. Deep fried. <laughs> Chickpeas are good protein. Now drop them in, drop them in oil. and we'll move from there. <laughs> the American, right? the American yeah. in Israel. <laughs> Although there is still nothing better than a halal cart on the streets in New York. Mm. Every time our, our daughter lives on the Upper West Side, we live in Jersey. Every time we visit her. As we're leaving, my wife looks at me and I look at her and there's the halal cart we stop at in the 70s for a plate full of rice, falafel and chicken with that white sauce on it. And it's it's a great meal. 70th and what? (laughs) I think it's around 76 on Broadway. On Broadway. okay, good. I'm up that way quite a bit. Oh, are you? Well, um, you'll see it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I'll be sure to check that one out. Okay, we're running low on time, but I can't let you go without talking to me about your three o'clock breakfast with Yasser Arafat. Oh, that was wonderful. This was when Arafat was still classified as a terrorist by the State Department. And when you would arrange an interview with him, there was a ritual you had to go through. He kept odd hours. And usually you'd have to have a meal with him whenever they called you. So it was the middle of the night. And we're all at the table and he's there and my correspondence there and my crew's there. And he has a large retinue of people and it's um, lovely Middle Eastern food and nothing extreme, just, you know, basics. And I should point out that to the PLO, Israel didn't exist. Right. You could not mention it. You could not talk about it. Those of us who worked in that region had two passports one that you would use to go to Israel just in case they stamped it, and then one you would use to go everywhere else. I mean, it was a verboten term, uh, certainly, well, in most of the Arab world at that point, but certainly to the PLO. At best, they would refer to it as the Zionist entity. So Ah, we're all like he who must not be named. Yeah, well, (laughs) it was the Voldemort of countries. And we're at this long table, lots of people, and everyone's talking. And all of a sudden, the sound man, and it's always the sound man, he notices something in the middle of the table that he wants, and he virtually screams so that everyone can hear his joy as he says, oh, blood oranges. I haven't had one of those since I was in Israel. Oh, no. (laughs) You know the old EF Hutton commercial where the entire room room got... Completely silent for it felt like a year, I <laughs> five seconds. No one responded to it, and then all conversation continued. Oh, yeah. it was. <laughs> and they were damn good oranges. I was gonna say, I love blood oranges. <laughs> yeah. I, I it, understand it, how he lost himself in the moment, but yeah, well, this was not offered at that meal, but they're incredible in vodka. Mm. Yeah, not screwdriver proportions, just no. the vodka still wins, but it's a really nice way to drink nice. vodka. I've had a blood orange margarita that is also quite nice. Oh, that sounds good. Not with salt, I would think, or with salt. Well, it's optional. I like it with yeah. the salt, frankly, because, you know, it's got enough bite to it. Okay. It's not too bad. I'll trust you. Yeah. 
Yeah. I usually just drink it straight from the bottle. Why bother mixing yeah, it? But that's, that's true. Just, one just way you to, could just lick some salt and take a Yeah, spoon. but see, again, now this goes back to real <laughs> cooking. Right. Margarita mix should be outlawed. Right. <laughs> it should not be legal. If you're not going to make it with real fruit, just don't drink it. It makes such a difference. Doesn't know? it? Although we did for another series I did, I'm trying to remember what it was. Anyway, for another TV series, we went to Jalisco and spent the day at a uh, tequila distillery. Oh, nice. That's a great story. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of fun. You could have a whole nother book and show on. Yeah. Well, on I can't remember anything we did that day. Well, then it must have been. A great, must have been terrific. Have been, yeah. It must have made great tequila. They <laughs> did. Actually. All right. So let me move to. All right. You know what? We're here. I'm here. It's Tell fine. me about <laughs> Checkpoint Charlie. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was lucky enough to cover and to a great extent coordinate NBC's coverage of the fall of communism. I did the Romanian Revolution, the Czech Velvet Revolution. I had spent a lot of time in East Germany because I'd been going back and forth for years. I mean, it was based over there, and that was a big part of our beat. So I had been in East Berlin a lot, which was as you would expect from the spy movies. When you got through Checkpoint Charlie, which was the American checkpoint, it was like in the movies. They stop the car, they search the trunk, they run the mirror under the car. They're looking for people coming in or, well, more importantly, coming out. out yeah. And then when you get in, when you cross Checkpoint Charlie, everything, and it's not like this today, I presume, but it was as if all the color drained out of the picture. Hmm. It was the same architecture because it had been one city, but it was all gray and dark and foreboding, hmm. with the exception of the vice versa that was sold, the kind of saucers they sold under the elevated train, which was fantastic. <laughs> but we had been covering the revolutions in throughout the communist world at that point. And Nightly News in New York made the decision, the prescient decision, to come do nightly from the Brandenburg Gate, which was, you know, one of the main dividing points between East and West Berlin. And while they were there, perhaps in no small measure aided by the massive lighting we had put up on the wall, the government of East Berlin announced, unbeknownst to us, you can leave if you want to hell with you. So we're preparing to do nightly, which I guess went on the air at that point at 1230 or 1130 in the evening, based on the time difference. Right. I was in the production trailer and a cameraman runs up to me and says, they're leaving. <laughs> I said, what? He says, they're coming. It was in the British sector, I think, not French. Anyway, not Checkpoint Charlie. He says, East Germans, East Berliners are streaming out. I said, come on, Peter, that's not going to happen. He says, look at this. And he rewinds the tape in his camera and he plays it for me and they're coming. Wow. So I told the executive producer, I told Brokaw, obviously the whole show changed at that point, but they were streaming out. Yeah. And after nightly at like two in the morning, after years of this formalized procedure of going carefully and to mm -hmm. some extent with trepidation, through Checkpoint Charlie, my crew and I walked through into mm -hmm. East Berlin 
And it was a ghost town. There was no one there. Wow. There was no border guard. There was nothing. Wow. And it was one of the most astonishing moments of my life. It's incredible. It was, it was pretty. And you know what? Every time I talk to someone about the fall of the wall, everyone I know from anywhere has a piece of the wall. I don't. You don't have a piece of the wall. I don't have a piece of the wall. I, I was I, I covered the, the thing for months. <laughs> I never got a piece of the wall. I mean, it's oh not like gosh. it physically got chopped down that night. Right. That's true. That's true. It was a little bit longer than that, but not much longer. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> oh my gosh. David, this has been such a treat. And, and for think, me, thank you for yeah. wanting to chat. Oh, yeah. Thank you for being here and sharing all these wonderful stories. I'm going to end with one final question, which is my signature final question. Okay. What did I not ask you that you would love to answer? Hmm. What did you not ask me that I would love to answer? Oh, here's a good question. How did I become a prose writer after being a TV writer? Perfect. And... I didn't. I basically wrote the book using the key pillars of television, which is anecdote, personality, and direct quotes. Mm. And I decided to structure the book around those three pillars, which I had to describe now, as opposed to saying, take a look at this or listen to this guy. But Writing is never easy. I mean, Red Smith said it's easy, just cut open a vein and bleed a while. But <laughs> I did not have the transition difficulties that I think a prose writer would have switching to television. Whereas I said earlier, you can't just tell the story. Right. And I think it's a great discipline to write for television because you can't afford mm -hmm. excess words and you can't afford meandering and rabbit trails and all those things that. Prose writers have to train themselves oh, out. But that's why I sit in front of the TV during network news each night and throw my shoe. <laughs> it's oh. not like it was back in my day, damn it. That's for sure. That is no, it's sure. interesting. Grammar's gone. We had, I actually wrote an email. Someone, one of the NBC correspondents last week referred to a rural farm in Indianapolis. Oh, my. And I wrote and said, <laughs> I found her email address. I said, I like your work, but wasn't that redundant? They're not raising a lot of beef. She said, Indiana. I said, they're not raising a lot of beef in Indianapolis. And she wrote back, and, fair point. Okay. And I pointed out to her that, you know, in my, in my day, when we walked uphill barefoot both ways in the <laughs> snow to school, we had a guy on the staff at Nightly, Gil Milstein, who had been a New York Times guy, who had been a leading jazz critic in America, but he was the grammar police. Mm -hmm. And he didn't care how cute your phrase was. If it was grammatically incorrect, he returned it to you via a bodily orifice. And, <laughs> or they just had a problem with a reporter who is now suspended for misreporting the facts around Pelosi's husband getting attacked. You know, that sort of sourced information that's just so damn wrong would never have gotten past Gill or yeah. the rest of the review process. But we could spend a long time talking about the quality of journalism. We really could, because as you know, that's where I cut my teeth was in yeah. journalism. That's and by the way, I'm not I'm, not, books. I'm and, not saying it's biased. I'm saying it's increasingly inept. There's a big difference. 
Well, and though, I do think, I mean, just to editorialize here since we're here, but I think that television news, Mm -hmm. and this is also has to do with losing the fairness doctrine, you know, with FCC regulation changes after Reagan, but television news, you used to have to specify when you were reporting facts Mm -hmm. and when you were sharing your opinion. And there was a distinct Mm -hmm. line. Yeah, but now you're talking about cable, which is such an outlier. I'm Yeah. Oh, so you're still talking okay. talking about the big three. Right, right, yes. But I do think generally the standards just aren't no, the standards have gone to hell, but what people don't realize is it's for as much as anything else, financial reasons. Mm-hmm. Resources have been cut, yeah. backups have been removed because back in my day, the network suddenly realized they could make money doing news. It used to be a loss leader. And once GE bought RCA, which I was going to say, and Cap Cities bought ABC and CBS <laughs> was purchased by that cigarette company. Yeah. Anyway, that's the shift for sure. Yeah. And by the way, which is not to say that we weren't wasting money, enjoying flying first class and having ridiculously expensive meals overseas, but I'm glad I got in on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we got to end on that note. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. David, thank you for being with us on The Author's Corner. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.